Hello and welcome to Killing Time, a podcast about conflicts and battles that have bent the arc of history. I'm your host, Chip Wagar. Thanks for joining me for this Military History Podcast series. Today we're going to delve into a more obscure battle to most people. The last two podcasts, we did pretty famous battles. The Battle of Gettysburg, which is the great battle of the American Civil War, and Waterloo, which really needs no introduction. Today, though, we're going to go back a little further into history and discuss the Battle of Poltava and the Great Northern War. But before I do that, I want to remind all our listeners that uh, we do have a website and invite you to check it out. It's www.killingtimepodcast.com. And on that site, we have a lot of information images, maps, and things like that, which will make your experience here with us even more enjoyable, I hope. So come check it out and let me know what you think. The Battle of Poltava, which we're going to discuss today, was fought between the armies of King Charles Twelfth of Sweden and Tsar Peter I, also known as Peter the Great, on June 27, 1709. Poltava was then and is today located in the Ukraine, which may be a surprising place for a Swedish army to have fought, so far away from what is today modern Sweden. Today, Poltava is a city of about 300,000 people, located in the eastern half of the Ukraine, on the Vorskla River. In 1709, It had only been annexed to the Russian Empire for 42 years, having been ruled at various times by Lithuania, Poland, and others. It was a fortified stronghold with about 6,000 soldiers at that time, a modest Russian bastion, you might say, on the ever-changing borderlands of the Ottoman Empire. And the Muslim vassal states that were basically puppet states of the Ottoman Sultan. The Swedish king, having wintered in Ukraine under extremely harsh conditions, decided to pluck what he thought would be a plump apple from the Russian tree to start his campaign in the early summer of 1709. The Great Northern War had been raging between Sweden and Russia for nine years, and Sweden and its boy king, Charles XII, had been victorious over every opponent in every major battle so far. And there was no reason to think that the city of Poltava could not be taken and perhaps even flush out the mysterious Russian army of the Tsar and defeat it as well, probably bringing the war to a successful conclusion for Sweden. Now before we get into the details of the battle itself, as always, Let me set the stage and context of the battle and the great northern war in which it was fought. For Poltava became the pivotal battle of a war that lasted 21 years and involved no less than eight dynasties vying for power during this time. I use the word dynasty advisedly because in this time period, dynasties were what mattered in international politics and wars. The word dynasty means nothing more than a succession of rulers from the same family. The word monarchy is also applicable to early 18th century Europe and means a form of government in which a single individual rules a given territory or a group of territories until death or abdication. Europe in the 18th century was less a collection of nation-states as we know them today Nationality was almost irrelevant in that time. 
monarchical dynasties often ruled various peoples of different racial, ethnic, or religious origins. Monarchies, especially the more powerful ones, ruled their territories and the people in them as if they were property. Over the centuries, various dynasties acquired more and more territory, often in the same way private property is obtained today, by marriage, inheritance, purchase, and in some cases by conquest. Dynastic wars often erupted when weaker neighboring dynasties became extinct for lack of a male heir and conflicting claims about who had the right to, quote, inherit a duchy, a principality, or a county, and an exit to their own. There was a sort of legality to all this, recognized at the time by a sort of consensus international law, One didn't normally simply attack and annex the province of another sovereign monarchy without attracting the attention and disapproval of other monarchies, which could in turn lead to even bigger wars. Nonetheless, this kind of aggressive, predatory war was what the Great Northern War was all about. Naked, opportunistic aggression. And yet, the other powers of Europe were distracted for the most part during this war by their own wars and had no time or money to weigh in here. Wars were then as now very expensive. Only a very few very powerful and very wealthy dynasties could afford to employ more than a palace guard. Many dynasties in Europe right up to the 19th century had no army at all. They simply couldn't afford one. The military power of many monarchies in Europe was not constrained usually by lack of manpower, but by money, the sinews of war, as Cicero had once called it. So who were the powers of Europe in 1700 when the Great Northern War began? Well, we have the usual suspects. The House of Hanover, whose monarch George I was the ruler not only of the large German state by that name, but was also king of England, Scotland, Ireland, and Wales, and the overseas territories in North America. Then there was the Bourbon dynasty in France, the Habsburgs, who ruled a collection of territories, including Hungary, Bohemia, Austria, and the Holy Roman Empire. But this war is not about these families, who by strange coincidence would be involved almost simultaneously in another major war lasting for 14 years from 1701 to 1715, the War of the Spanish Succession. The dynasties we are concerned with here include the House of Palatinate Zweibrücken that ruled the vast Swedish kingdom and its king Charles Twelfth. The Romanov dynasty, rulers of Russia, and the Tsar Peter I. The House of Oldenburg, rulers of Denmark and Norway, and their king, Frederick IV. And the Wetten dynasty of Saxony, whose king, Augustus the Strong, was also the elected king of Poland and Lithuania. These were the main players in the Great Northern War. At the time of these two wars, Hard as it may be to believe today, Russia was a minor and peripheral power, far to the east, and considered an almost non-entity on the European scene. Sweden, by contrast, was a major European power, whose possessions included modern-day Finland, parts of Norway, parts of Russia, including the territory of Ingria, where the city of St. Petersburg would be founded and sits today as well as a collection of German territories on the south side of the Baltic Sea, such as Bremen, Holstein, Wismar, and western Pomerania. Sweden had been an expanding power in the preceding century, acquiring territory by the sword, piece by piece, and was at the zenith of its power, when its king, Charles XI, in 1697, suddenly died, leaving as his heir his 15-year-old son, the moment seemed ripe for a concerted attack 
to roll back Swedish power, and in the three years preceding 1700, an alliance was formed among Peter the Great, Augustus of Saxony, and Frederick IV of Denmark to do just that. Denmark opened hostilities against Sweden by launching an attack against Swedish Holstein in Germany, while Russia attacked Ingria, and Saxony invaded Swedish Livonia, an area on the very eastern end of the Baltic, roughly covering the modern-day states of Estonia and Latvia. This three-pronged attack from the west, the south, and the east was optimistically thought to overwhelm the Swedes and force the cession of these territories to the invaders. Nothing of the kind would happen. The Swedes methodically crushed each invader in turn. First to go were the Danes. The Swedish army scattered the Danish fleet and landed their army near Copenhagen, while the Danish king's army was off in far-off Germany. Denmark sued for peace and was out of the war in five months, signing a treaty that would eliminate Denmark as a rival until after the Battle of Poltava in 1709. Charles XII then moved his army east to Livonia to deal with the Russians, who had entered Ingria and laid siege to the fortress city of Narva. In the First Battle of Narva, young Charles and his officers, with an army of about 10,500 men and 37 cannon, utterly crushed a Russian army of 37,000 men and 197 artillery pieces, sending it reeling back into the hinterlands of Russia, from which it would not appear again for a year or so, while Peter and his officers set about reorganizing and refitting it. Rather than chase the Russian army, the Swedes then rounded on Augustus the Strong. In 1702, the Saxons were defeated decisively at the Battle of Klisov, and in 1703 at Pultusk. Occupying Poland, Lithuania, Charles persuaded the Polish parliament to dethrone Augustus and elect basically a puppet noble, Stanislaw Lysinski, as the new king of the Commonwealth of Poland and Lithuania in 1704. Now the bulk of Augustus's inheritance was not only out of the war, but at least a nominal ally of the Swedish king. The Saxons continued to resist, but in 1706, Charles inflicted the most devastating defeat yet at Fraustadt. With only about 9,500 men and no artillery, the Swedish commander, Carl Gustav Renskold, a man we're going to hear more about in a little bit, enveloped a Saxon-Russian army of 20,000 with 32 artillery pieces, annihilating it in detail. Augustus has had enough. He signed a treaty in 1706, ending the war and his alliance with Russia, ceding Poland-Lithuania, and recognizing Stanislaw Lysinski as its king. So, as you can see, the Swedish king and his invincible army were riding pretty high at that point in time. Now, a word about the armies of this age. In our earlier podcasts dealing with wars in the 19th and 20th centuries, such as Waterloo, Königgratz, and Tannenberg, we've been discussing armies of hundreds of thousands of men. Armies of that size were unheard of in this age. At the Battle of Blenheim, the single biggest battle of the War of the Spanish Succession, 52,000 men under the Duke of Marlborough defeated an army of about 50,000 Franco-Bavarian troops, roughly 100,000 men for both sides total. 
The Battle of Poltava would also involve roughly a hundred thousand men. These were stupendously expensive, large armies of the day. As we've already said, it wasn't the lack of warm bodies that prevented larger armies. It was the cost. The monarchs of that day simply couldn't afford to train, equip, victual, and move armies of larger sizes. Furthermore, unlike the battles we've discussed in previous podcasts, the roads of Europe, particularly Central and Eastern Europe, and the distances were monumental obstacles which required similar prodigious expense to surmount. Only the wealthiest dynasties could bear such a cost, and it strained even their resources to the limit. The small size of these armies and the time it took to move them reduced the monarchies to short campaigns of a few months of the year, when the weather permitted. While these wars lasted over a decade, only one or two battles might be fought a year under these conditions. Bringing an enemy army to battle required very carefully thought-out strategies to threaten or seize strategic points or cities that would force a reluctant enemy to engage. Importantly, if an army was far from home, it would have to winter in quarters built to house and feed an idle army for months in snowy or freezing conditions. Nonetheless, Sweden had been forced to defend itself, and now in 1706 Charles XII was undoubtedly at the apex of his power. The tactics and discipline of the Swedes had assumed legendary status in Europe at this point, and Sweden looked well-nigh invincible, having soundly defeated every enemy and eliminating them from the conflict, all except Russia. And Charles XII did not fail to notice this enemy, who had yet to submit to his invincible army, withdrawing deep into its territory after its stinging defeats. Russia's capacity to continue the war meant that it had already emerged as the most dangerous of all Sweden's enemies and must be crushed so soundly as to eliminate it once and for all as a threat. A word now about the Swedish king, who, in my opinion, ranks up there with Frederick the Great of Prussia uh, as one of the greatest ever uh, soldier kings in European history. As I've already mentioned, this young man, who was being called the Alexander of the North by now, had been crowned at the age of 15 and forced to war at 18, and yet had managed to stun the continent of Europe by the age of 25. How was this possible? There are several explanations, but first and foremost was the young man's intelligence, bravery, and willingness to learn the art of war almost from the outset of his reign. With the death of his mother in 1693, the late King Charles XI had taken special care in the upbringing of his son in the four years remaining before his own death. He involved him in state affairs, and the boy accompanied his father in the conduct of his military duties. He was well acquainted with his most senior commanders and at the very outset of the war was guided by them. These included Field Marshal Renskold, a brilliant general who I've already mentioned. Others included Count Otto Wellink and Adam Ludwig Lohenhaupt. As time went on, however, Charles XII himself took more and more of the operational command of the army and became a brilliant general by necessity. He was personally present at nearly every major engagement. He frequently exposed himself to enemy fire and won the admiration and affection of his army. Why was it so often successful on the battlefield despite usually being outnumbered? Swedish military tactics were quite different from most of the standard armies of Europe at that time, due in part to the inferior numbers Sweden could field at such distances from the homeland. 
To compensate, the Swedes used a standard method of attack known as the Gopa technique, preceded by a consistent and heavy dose of Lutheran fatalism. The Swedish monarchy, since its great king Gustavus Adolphus, had long considered itself the sword of Protestantism. Fatalism in the face of the enemy was a stoic quality imbued in the Swedish soldier from the day of his enlistment or conscription into the army. The Swedish soldier was taught that his fate was in God's hands. If God meant him to die, it was no use to dodge bullets or flee. This religious indoctrination, propaganda if you like, was quite successful in breeding a ferocious courage on the field, and the repeated successes of the Swedes further convinced them that it was God's will that Sweden was meant to win. The other unique uh, aspect of the Swedish army was that it still used a fairly heavy mix of pikemen, combined with the newly utilized bayonet and swords in shock tactics that were meant to quickly break the lines and morale of the enemy with minimal casualties. Most European armies by then had eliminated pikemen, preferring more firepower, using long lines of infantry with muskets to systematically reduce their opponents. A typical Swedish tactic was for its infantry to march smoothly and quickly to within 50 meters of the enemy before firing a shot. This was about the limit of effective musket fire. The Swedish rear ranks would quickly fill in gaps where soldiers had fallen on the march across uh, the field approaching the enemy, and then fire a volley, which at such range usually mowed down the enemy ranks like a scythe. They would reload their quicker-loading flintlocks and then march to within 20 meters, virtually point-blank range, and fire another volley. At that point, swords were drawn, bayonets were fixed, and the pikemen would surge forward for a brutal hand-to-hand combat. These shock tactics were nearly always effective in smashing holes in the enemy lines, inducing panic and routing even uninvolved nearby units who witnessed their comrades fleeing the field. The bayonet, shock tactics, and close combat by massed columns would eventually become widespread until the mid-19th century, by which time massed artillery, rapid-fire breech-loading rifles, and other defensive tactics exposed its limitations. In 1709, however, especially in the hands of the Swedes, these tactics produced nothing short of remarkable results. Now let's turn to the other side, the Russians, and their leader, Peter the Great. Because the real story of the Great Northern War was not just the shocking collapse of Sweden as a great power, but the emergence of a new one that is still with us today, and that is Russia. hard to believe that there was a time when Russia was just another semi-Asiatic borderland on the outskirts of Europe that had no really significant impact on the other states of Europe or the world. But in 1700, that's how it was. Compared to Poland, Russia was an inferior backward land. It was virtually landlocked with no access to either the Baltic or Black Seas at that time. It had no navy. The great cities of Kiev and Smolensk were virtually on the eastern border of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, which was, aside from Russia, the largest state in Eastern Europe at that time. 
Moscow was just 400 kilometers, or about 250 miles from Smolensk. Ukraine had just been incorporated into the empire in 1667, just a few years before Peter became Tsar in 1682. It had powerful enemies, aside from Sweden, including the Ottoman Empire to the south, along with its various vassal states in the Crimea, and the Safavid dynasty in Persia. Aside from its peripheral geographic position and vulnerabilities, the Russian state in 1700 was economically, technologically, culturally, and socially behind the rising states of Europe. The Enlightenment, which had been sweeping Europe since the 1650s, had made little impression on Russia, except for one very important person, Peter Alexievich of the House of Romanov, who had become the absolute ruler of Russia in a tumultuous climb to power very different from that of Charles Twelfth in 1696. This narrative is far too short to discuss the immense personality of Peter the Great. His biography has occupied many historians. He's been depicted in film, TV series. He's a colossal figure beyond the possibilities of this podcast to describe, except all too briefly. But I'll do my best. Peter was, first of all, a physically imposing figure. He was six feet eight inches tall and a very strong man. In 1700, he was 28 years old. He was strikingly handsome with shoulder-length thick black hair, large brown eyes, a trim mustache, but otherwise clean-shaven. He emerged as ruler after a series of palace coups and power struggles, some bloody, in which he his older half-brother, and his sister were the objects of manipulation by various rival factions of the Russian nobility. He had watched a number of his friends and relatives murdered before his very eyes by the palace guard in one of these bloody conflicts at the age of ten. At the age of seventeen, he was himself nearly murdered in another palace coup that resulted in his achieving power. Violence was nothing new or unusual to Peter. He used torture and mass executions, if necessary, to achieve his ends, although he was not a particularly cruel man, but a very practical one. If the ends justified the means, he had the will to apply them. At the time just preceding the Great Northern War, Peter embarked on an 18-month tour of Europe, in which his open and curious mind absorbed all he saw, heard, and did. The excitement and intellectual power of the Enlightenment Peter absorbed almost wholesale, and he enthusiastically watched, listened, and learned everything he experienced. He met high and low alike, from kings to craftsmen at the Dutch East Indies shipyard, where he worked along with carpenters laying the keel of a trade ship. His grand embassy is his as it's been called, produced invidious comparison in his own mind between his own country and those of Europe that were accentuated further by another palace revolt that cut short his travels. Upon his return to Moscow, the revolt of the Streltsy, that's the palace guard, had been crushed, but upon his orders some 1,200 of them were tortured and executed, their bodies were publicly displayed in Moscow, 1,200 of them, as a warning to all others. There would be no more revolts while Peter was alive. Nonetheless, we'll concentrate on the international and military side with that little background of the young, formative Peter the Great. It was during his great embassy that the idea of a coalition against Sweden was born. Peter met Frederick IV and Augustus of Saxony, his two main partners during his tour. Shortly after his return to Moscow in 1699, he declared war on Sweden, along with his partners, as we have seen, with the object of securing access to the Baltic Sea, hopefully in Istria, but perhaps also through Finland as well. 
As we've seen, Russia's initial foray into the war, the siege and first battle of Narva was nothing short of disastrous. So a word about the Russian army that entered the war in 1700. The core of the Russian army of the late 1600s had been the Streltsy, the very same palace guard that Peter had just executed quite a number of. The Streltsy had been officially disbanded after that, but their soldiers were incorporated nonetheless into the Russian army. To the Streltsy were added foreign mercenaries, often of poor quality and questionable stamina or loyalty in any really hard-fought conflict. The cavalry was made up of members of the aristocracy or Cossacks from the south. The remaining part of the army were conscripts, serfs or peasants literally forced into military service, often poorly trained and liable to flee for their lives in close combat of the kind the Swedes were so rightly famous for. It was a pretty dubious army of about forty to 50,000 men that moved extremely slowly with low morale and officers largely ignorant of the tactics of European armies of the day, let alone that of the Swedes. In addition to the human qualities of the army, its equipment was also outdated. The typical Russian soldier was armed with the matchlock musket and no bayonet. Now, I'm just going to discuss here for a second or two the, the, mat, the, the matchlock because it's literally sort of the bottom of the food chain of, of firearms. Um, it, it is extremely primitive and slow loading compared to the Swedish flintlock. Um, it, it, the design uh, of the matchlock uh, was basically revolved around a slow burning match that's held in a clamp at the end of a small curved lever known as the serpentine. When you pull the trigger um, at the bottom of the gun, uh, it connected the serp- was connected to the serpentine and the clamp dropped down, lowering a smoldering match into the flash pan, igniting the priming powder. And then that traveled through a touch hole, lighting the main charge or propellant into the gun barrel. And when you released it, it sprang back into place. Both ends of the match were usually kept alight in case one end should be accidentally extinguished. Now, this weapon had many weaknesses. Um, The match simply went out a lot of times, so that left you with basically an expensive club in your hands. Um, it, It... If you were in damp or wet conditions, this was even worse. Um, A smoldering match, uh, when it's around, you know, um, gunpowder, it could possibly ignite accidentally uh, a charge of gunpowder. At night, the glowing match can give away your position, and the smell of it could give away your position. But the greatest drawback to this weapon uh, uh, for the Russians was how long it took to prime and load it and fire it compared to the flintlock, how unsafe it was, and the fact that it had no bayonet. So you can imagine if you're a Russian soldier, you know, being uh, rushed in close combat, all you have basically in your hands is a club compared to the Swedes who have long pikes and um, uh, bayonet-tipped long uh, muskets that can stab uh, at great distance while you're unable to even get close. Pole axes were still in use in the Russian army, which provided some close support, but not in sufficient numbers to really make a difference. Now, there was one exception to the generally poor quality equipment and leadership of the Russian soldiers. Two guard regiments that the Tsar had personally created in his youth, away from the Russian court and its intrigues. These were two guards regiments of about a thousand soldiers each. The Preobrashensky and the Semenovsky regiments. Small in number, after the disbanding of the Streltsy, these two regiments were the rock upon which Peter would build a modern, effective army after the disaster at Narva in 1700. 
By the way, these two regiments would go on in history to become the Russian Imperial Guard by the time of Napoleon and were maintained in glory until the fall of the monarchy itself in 1917. The soldiers and officers of the Guards' regiments were, first of all, fanatically loyal to their creator and master, Peter himself. Peter saw to it that they were equipped, drilled, and trained in the European style, importing military advisors and officers from Western Europe, another one of Peter's great qualities. He knew when to take advice and had an open mind, so long as the advice given produced practical results. Nonetheless, although the Guards' regiments had fought well at Narva, the Russian infantry was still made up largely of peasant and serf conscripts whose very short training time and poor equipment led to the rout and loss of about half his army of 50,000 at Narva. After the disaster and during a period of reprieve when Charles and the Swedes, as we saw, turned on the Saxons, Peter set about bringing the mass of his army up to European standards. Far more extended and rigorous training was introduced to an army that swelled in size due to more widespread conscription requirements imposed by the Tsar. By 1705, the foot army numbered 47 line regiments, two guards, and five regiments of grenadiers. The provincial Streltsy regiments were gradually assimilated into the line regiments. Furthermore, Peter placed far greater faith in cannon than did the Swedes, whose shock tactics usually relied on only slightly more than a brief appetizer before the main meal. The Russians at Poltava relied upon a heavier dose of firepower, a superiority of 34 cannon for the Swedes as compared to 102 for the Russians. By 1703, Peter felt strong enough to invade the Istrian Peninsula again, while the Swedish army was operating in Poland and Saxony far to the south. In fact, it was that year that the city of St. Petersburg was founded and construction begun there. Yet the new Russian army had yet to face real opposition. With the defeat of the Saxons in 1705, Peter knew what would be coming next. Peter also had several excellent generals, one of which produced a victory over a, a small force of Swedes at Kallis in October 1706, the first true Russian victory over the Swedes, although it was a very small battle. This was the great cavalry commander, Alexander Menshikov, who we'll see again at the Battle of Poltava. So, as we've seen, a pattern that will repeat in Russian military history down through the centuries, there was initial defeat and disaster, exposing Russian military weakness, followed by ruthless reform and reorganization, while the state traded space for time. And then the Russian counteroffensive, usually deep within their own territory, where resources are near for them, far away for the invading enemy. This will be true for Charles Twelfth, Napoleon Bonaparte, and in the 20th century, of course, Adolf Hitler. Charles attempted alliances, as a prudent man would have done, with the Ottoman Empire, Peter's great enemy, also with the Cossacks and with the Khan of Crimea in 1707 and 1708 to supplement his always deficient numbers. He also tried to bring Peter to battle in those years, but without success, and he was forced to winter in Ukraine during the coldest winter in Europe for a generation. He sustained severe attrition of his army, and by spring he commanded just 20,000 soldiers and 34 cannon. Seeking supplies, he decided to attack Poltava when campaigning began. Peter had sent some forces south under Shermetev to follow Charles, then more under Lowenhop, and then still more under Menshikov. When on May 2nd, 1709, Charles laid siege to the city, Peter had a force of some 80,000 to relieve the city, and he set about doing so. How he did so demonstrated the maturity of Peter the Great and his generals, 
after years of mostly bitter experience fighting the Swedes. Peter moved to within striking distance of Poltava and concentrated his army in preparation for a battle in which he would negate the go-pa attacking style with which he had become so familiar. He constructed a string of forts and breastworks facing Charles and between two heavily wooded forests on either side. These fortifications were hastily constructed of wood and earth, but nevertheless were designed to impede, frustrate, and maul the advancing Swedish infantry, while Peter held in reserve his superior numbers of cavalry and infantry until the decisive moment came. With the Russian army at last within reach, the siege of Poltava itself became an insignificant sideshow as the Swedes moved toward the Russians to the north and east of the city, arrayed across the corridor created between the two forests. Charles really had little choice, because once the Russians were fully ensconced in their positions, they would begin to sally forth to relieve the city and engage the Swedes in any case. Now was the moment he'd been waiting for, Charles thought, the day before the battle, as he scouted the terrain and the Russian positions. But here the chance of war intervened. Charles was hit by a stray bullet in the foot, causing a wound that made it impossible for him to stand. For much of the Battle of Poltava, he had to be carried on a litter, and would escape later only when hoisted on the back of a horse. Realizing his immobility, he had to give battlefield command to his most capable and his favorite, Field Marshal Gustav Renskold. Together, though, they devised their plan to deal with the Russian defensive array. The upside-down T of fortifications and breastworks, hastily created by Peter and his army, extended with the long arm of the T pointing toward the advancing Swedes. The idea was to pour enfilading fire on the Swedes, whether they veered to the left or the right of the T, while also pounding them with artillery and musket fire from the forts on the back row of the upside-down T. The plan would work, but at the cost of 100% casualties in the first two fortresses, when the Swedes under Carl Gustav Ruse attacked. But the defense of the third fort in the chain bogged down Ruse for hours and probably proved to be the fatal flaw in the attack. The Swedes advanced in four columns with their usual élan. The plan was for Ruse in one column to engage the various forts in the chain so that they would be unable to fire on the remaining Swedish columns who would move past them through the corridor, bypassing the remaining forts on the back line and pushing through to the Russian infantry waiting in the rear. There the decisive battle would decide the day. And indeed that is what happened, but minus a quarter of its strength, as Ruse would never arrive. Things began in the usual way with heavy fighting. The Russian cavalry engaged the advancing columns and were routed by the Swedish cavalry. Likewise, the infantry the Russians had arrayed in and around the back line uh, were beaten and routed as well. But then the Swedes paused to wait for Ruse to catch up in preparation for the final push. With the Russian cavalry blown and in disarray, and the Swedes already through the back line of forts, the ensuing two-hour delay allowed Peter and his generals to recall and reform the cavalry and reposition the infantry to receive the dreaded onslaught that was sure to come. Now, One odd fact about the Battle of Poltava was that so much of it was fought at night, before dawn, on the day of the battle. Charles actually began his attack in force at about 4 a.m. and had reached the back wall by 5. Rather than chase the dispirited Russian cavalry or retreating Russian infantry, 
Renskold chose to break off the chase to reconcentrate his army, expecting Ruse to join him momentarily. But like Grouchy at Waterloo, he never did. Ruse was eventually repelled from the third fort, with only 1,500 of his original force left. He retreated east into the woods, away from the main body of the Swedish army, and was no factor for the remainder of the battle. The Russians even retook the first two lost forts, although this was of dubious value since the main fighting would take place behind them to their rear. It was about 9.45 in the morning when the Swedes advanced again. Once more, a fierce attack broke the Russian first line of infantry after a terrific series of salvos of musket fire that decimated the ranks of both forces. But the Russians could afford it more. The first line retreated to a second fire line, at which point a brisk Swedish cavalry charge would have caused a breakthrough. But the Swedish cavalry was still disorganized and regrouping from their earlier clash with the Cossacks and never materialized. Meanwhile, superior Russian numbers, well managed by Peter and his commanders, began to tell. The first sign was the rapidly lengthening Russian line on the Swedish left and the infantry massing there. The Swedes simply didn't have enough men to spare to move up to confront them, heavily engaged now across the whole front. Here's where Ruse's absence really starts to be felt. As a result, an enveloping maneuver began to materialize helplessly, before the eyes of the Swedish commanders. Now it was the Swedes who started to break and flee from the enveloping Russians in a cascade of rapidly escalating proportions. And the Swedish right was also in trouble. Their progress had been somewhat better, a slow advance against stubborn Russian resistance. But it actually simply fixed the Swedish infantry on the right in place, since it didn't dare disengage and precipitate a general retreat. In a desperate move to break the Russian right, the Swedish cavalry commander, Kreutz, having now cobbled together an attacking force of some value, attempted to sweep around the flank of the Russians. But in another European innovation, learned in the years of training, the Russian battalions quickly formed into squares to repulse the cavalry, and it was at this moment that the coup de grace was administered by none other than Menshikov and his cavalry. Menshikov's as yet unused, fresh horse swept through the f- Swedish cavalry, dispersing them, and then rounded on the f- Swedish infantry's right flank, completing a virtual encirclement and driving into them from the rear. This was a perfect battle on the model of Hannibal's Canet, with a double envelopment now underway on the left and right. The Swedish army disintegrated at this point, and it was every man for himself. Mobs of soldiers made for the woods. Others retreated back the way they came through the withering fire of the forts and breastworks. Some escaped, but most were captured or simply ridden down and killed. Charles and a small entourage escaped on horseback. But Field Marshal Renskold himself and Generals Schlippenbach, Stockelberg, Hamilton, and Prince Maximilian Emmanuel among others, were captured. The Swedish army was annihilated and vanished from the scene as a fighting force, with more detachments that initially escaped, surrendering by July 1st. Charles eventually made for the Turkish border and entered Bessarabia, where Peter could not go without the consent of the Sultan or risk war. The Sultan, Ahmed III, who would go on to fight 
a brief war with Peter after all this, nonetheless granted the king asylum, where he remained marooned for five years, while the coalition, now emboldened, reformed, pressed Sweden on every front, now joined by Prussia and Hanover. Sweden continued to resist for the next 11 years, but it was really all over. Sweden lost all its possessions in Germany and the Eastern Baltic in 1710, the very next year. And by 1714, Finland was lost to Russia as well. Charles eventually made his way back to Sweden, but was killed in battle at Fredrikstad in 1718. He was only 36 years old. What a tragic figure he makes in history, certainly in Swedish history, but in military history again. A young man who had never really had a choice but to engage in war and who did his duty and really did it well until Poltava absolutely ruined him. After the Swedish king's death, a series of peace treaties were negotiated between 1719 and 1721, with Russia the last power to agree to terms, and with the biggest gains, including a rather large window on the Baltic. Much of Livonia, Istria, and Finland, and Swedish Karelia fell into Russian hands. More importantly... Russia was now the dominant power in the Baltic. With true great power status also in Europe, that would only grow in the centuries to come, down to the present day. Peter's domestic reforms and driving ambition would continue to modernize and grow Russian economic and military power until his death in 1725 at the age of 53. His legacy in Russian and European history is hardly calculable and undoubtedly is the reason, despite his occasional violent ruthlessness, he's given the title The Great. By contrast, the War of Spanish Succession, which had concluded a few years earlier, ended in an essential stalemate among the Western powers with a partition of the formerly dominant Spanish Empire beginning its wane on the European scene, although not with anywhere near the precipitous collapse that occurred to Sweden. Spain actually remained a great power until Napoleon's time about a hundred years later. And so we come to the end of another podcast. I hope you liked it. And again, that you'll visit our website at www.killingtimepodcast.com Until the next time, I'm your host, Chip Wagar, bidding you goodbye until then. <laughs>